Recall from last week? Yeah, reckless spending, yeah, you know, um, irresponsible, that kind of thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning today together here in this place that your church is meeting and or has met. We'll meet across the world today with one heart. We confess, we confess Christ as our risen Lord. We want the Holy Spirit to be our truest guide and interpreter and understander of things and uh, as well as our comfort and um, to excite us about Jesus and to show us Him more clearly. Father, that we would glorify You maximally today and so be pleased among us this morning to make Yourself known to our intellect and emotions. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, yeah, the parable of the the two lost sons we will find in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to... uh, I'm going to just turn this because it keeps flipping my page. And I'll eventually get annoyed at that if I'm not already. Uh, I don't think we need to read through it again, but... uh, we left off last week talking a little bit about the fact that when we, we read in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread while I perish here with hunger? So, that does not seem to me to be introducing repentance by any stretch of the imagination. I don't believe that this boy is repentant by any means right now, and although that's something that we often hear in the teaching of this parable. Even... Even someone as uh, gifted as Simon Kistemaker in his book on the parables, and he's a, he's a commentator, says, uh, The father chose to wait patiently and wisely for the son to come to his senses so that he will confess his sin at his own accord and seek reconciliation. The father-son relationship is restored, the lost is found. And I profoundly disagree with him on that. Because that's not what's happened, not yet. It is going to happen, we'll see it in the text, I think, in a little nuance, but I really don't believe, and we talked about why that is, because verse 18 sounds much more like a scheme as well than it does any sense of repentance. Right? He starts out by saying, man, I'm starving here. I don't even have any bread. And, and so the, 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 the thought of going to the Father to, to say, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. would be a great opportunity for him to go, earn back some money, pay back his father, and, and as we'll see, uh, have good standing with the community again and how important that is which we're going to take a look at. Uh, But, again, don't see anything in here that would seem to indicate to me that this is uh, repentance, although the language that he uses sounds like it. You'll you'll recall we looked last week in the chapter in Exodus where after the eighth plague, Pharaoh pretty much said the same thing. I've sinned against you and against against God. Now go and pray for me, therefore, etc., etc., right? Uh, And and these, these Pharisees in particular would know that. A lot of things Jesus is doing here. This is... This is why this is, you know, I don't know. To me, this is, when it comes to grace, this is a parable of grace. This is such a such an important parable. Such a, um, I hate to say it's like, because it's no more inspired than anything else in Scripture, but, I mean, we could certainly say that by grace you are saved by faith certainly strikes us as more important than, you know, uh, Uzzah was the son of Bagilei or something, right? So, there are certain things in Scripture that really grab us. And this one really grabs me, and as I hope it does you, uh, okay, so knowing that, then, so we go into the 20th verse, 
uh, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So, in this parable, uh, first of all, I don't believe in this parable God is, uh, Jesus is talking about the fatherhood of God, as if to say this father in the parable is like our father God. Uh, I, I think for reasons that will become clear, what we're seeing the father is like in this is Jesus. Jesus is the father in this parable, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I think that we can agree with that. But, or at least to some extent, uh, but but Jesus does here is he shows a father who is completely defies ancient Jewish patriarchal norms. There is nothing that this father does that in any way would 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 be typical of what we would expect the ancient Jewish patriarch to be doing. Uh, we already saw some of that back in verse 12, actually, uh, when when the son came to him and the younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me." And he divided his property between them. Now, what did we say was going on with that particular verse? What's the son saying there to the father? What is the son revealing about himself? He wanted his father to be dead. Yeah, yeah. Just, just as soon as his father be dead. Because in that, in that society, to go to your... What a good brother. Uh, to go to, to say something like that about your father, you know, and to your father would be just as soon to say, I wish you were dead. I really wish you weren't here. Because it, there was provision where you could divide the inheritance, but you weren't even to think about cashing that out until your father was deceased. So this shows the heart of the boy, where he's at, and his relationship with his father. Now remember, too, that this follows up, this is one of three parables which if we're going to understand this parable, we have to make sure that we at least are familiar with the first two, which we touched upon. And those two parables came after the saying that Jesus said to the Pharisees, when the Pharisees were grumbling amongst themselves, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know? And then Jesus jumped right into the two parables. The one of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and goes out to find the one. And when he finds it, he comes back rejoicing because he found it. And the woman who lost her coin, she scours the house and finds it. She finds the coin. She invites all her friends to come over and celebrate because she found the lost coin. So this, what's going on in this parable uh, of the prodigal son is very important because it follows upon what is happening with those things. Okay? <clears throat> what he should have done at that point would have been completely appropriate to smack his son right in the mouth. He said, give me my inheritance so I can go out. And his father could have, could have just smacked him right there with a backhand. And that would have been the appropriate response at that time. Um, and of course, the father didn't do that. Do you suppose the father was looking for him on a regular basis? Because I've heard this taught. And I don't know that I have a position on it. Because we know that the father saw him coming far off. Do we think that the father was looking for him? He just, just sort of happened to see him or... You know, what, what do we know about the Father so far could give us some thought about that? I don't know that it's critical to the parable, but what do you think? What say you, Maureen? <coughs> well, I'll say this about the son. The son was old enough to go out on his own. Mm-hmm. And the father knew the son. Mm-hmm. That's why he gave him. Mm-hmm. His, he knew his heart was not... 
No. No, it wouldn't have. I'm sorry? The son really came to know his father. He always knew the kind of man was mm-hmm. I believe the father was out there every day. Mm-hmm. Not all day. Uh-huh. Always looking. Always glancing. Always glancing. Yeah. Yeah, quite possibly so. Wait for the telephone calls. Yeah. Wait for the attitude of the mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. When they're away from us. Mm-hmm. Even though I live with Kelly Dan every mm-hmm. day, what's their attitude? Oh sure. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. I think that uh, the father, by the way, when he saw the coming, his son coming, had no clue that his son was repentant at that point. I don't. I don't think the father thought that at all. Right. Right. He just was glad to see him alive. Just glad to see him alive in a sense. You know what I mean? Uh, because you know your hope gets all filled back up again. You can imagine your child just sort of going off. And again, we don't appreciate, even if they would come to us today and say, hey, I, I know that I, you got some inheritance stored up for me, uh, you know, I'd like it. It's still not nearly as meaningful as it would have been in that culture. Uh, and that's why I say, particularly in that society, in that patriarchal culture, that would have, if the father were to do it, it would not have, if he were to have smacked him, it would not have been in any way, that the community would not have frowned on it at all. They would have applauded him, you know. So, let's take a look over here on, uh, I just want to show you a quote, something else about the father that was very unusual, and this guy, Ken Bailey, brings this out. He says, the father acts like a mother in this particular case. He says, in the parable, a a traditional oriental patriarch would be expected to sit in grand isolation in the house to hear what the wayward boy might have to say for himself. The mother could run down the road and shower the boy with kisses. Okay? So the father takes on another completely different role here. And he, and, and so uh, the author uh, of this particular commentary, who I appreciate very much, makes the point that God is very much presented as a father who also has the tender compassion of a mother throughout Scripture. Particularly in the way Scripture talks about God giving birth to his people. You know, and other verses as well. Isaiah 42, 14 Paul says he was like a nursing mother. Yes. Yes. Isaiah forty two fourteen. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And in Deuteronomy there's also verses that refer to it. That God is, though he clearly is, this is not to, not to address the um, very bad hermeneutical practice of bringing gendered, specific language that doesn't belong in the Scripture to the Scripture as some very modern translations might like to do. Replacing he with, you know, uh, and with, with sort of a, pro- a, pro- a proper pronoun that doesn't really make that distinction. In many places, it's very important to make that distinction. God is presented, although he is spirit and doesn't have physicality in the ultimate sense, he is presented as father. He is presented in the, with the pronoun he all the time. And yet it's important for us to see, created in the image of God, the sort of compassion, the tenderness, so to speak, uh, I mean of a mother, so to speak, and the many things that God did to 
protect and advance that part of the image of God that was it was lacking in many ways. Uh, the compassion for the poor, all these things too. So, a surprising thing about the Father. So, we sort of pull back the cultural curtain and understand why the Father has, why the Father is doing this. Okay? There's a very important reason why the Father is doing this. Uh, I also read a commentary about the Jewish culture at that time where when the son came back to the town, when he came to the gate, like, Everyone knew what he did in the town, how he, you know, insulted his father. Yes. And he would have, like, he should have had to have kind of walk through the town, like, almost like a walk of shame. Yeah. But the father came running. Yes. The son. Yes. So he didn't have to do that walk of shame. Exactly. He, he met him. There was, there was, as John's referring to, a particular ancient ceremony in the days of Jesus, before and after, that dealt specifically with the community's practice of dealing with any Jewish boy who lost his family's inheritance to Gentiles. I mean, it was that specific. So this isn't the first time this happened. They have a ceremony in place to deal with this. So it's not the first time, to Maureen's bigger point in a way, that a Jewish boy took his dad's inheritance, or or not just inheritance, the family wealth, and dealing with the family business, and somehow lost it to Gentiles. Uh, and it was, as I don't know if you mentioned the name of it, but there was what they called the Katsatsa Ceremony, spelled K-E-T-S-A-T-S-A-H, the Katsatsa Ceremony. And in this very strange ceremony, this is things that uh, the villagers would bring a large earthenware jar, fill it with burned nuts and burned corn, and break it in front of the guilty individual. While doing this, the community would shout, John is cut off from his people whoever it is. And from that point on, the village would have nothing to do with the wayward lad. So this is a bizarre ceremony. And I, as you know, I was thinking of this. Anyone remember the old Saturday Night Live skit, the Czechoslovakian brothers? <laughs> so these guys, so Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd were the Czechoslovakian brothers. And they were in America trying to get their way and find their way, you know. And, you know, they were goofy. This is where the two wild and crazy guys came, came from, right? Well, they said, we have a ceremony when we, when we end our relationship with a woman. He says, I break with thee, I break with thee, I break with thee. Then we throw dog poop on her shoes. <laughs> and I'm thinking as I'm reading this thing, it's very bit as bizarre. You fill an earthenware vessel with burned corn and burned nuts, and you smash it down in front of the guy, you yell at his name, and you say he's cut off from the ceremony. And the humiliation. And... The family wouldn't be humiliated. The family would be just as... You know, we think of weird things. Don't forget, in ancient, ancient Israel, if your son was totally profligate all the time, drunk and whatnot, you were supposed to do what to him? What was their provision for? Yeah, bring him to the elders at the city gate and have him stoned to death. Now, I think there were probably a lot of profligate sons whose parents did not do that. Um, But what a bizarre ceremony. And so... Uh, to John's point, the father intends to stop that from happening. He's going he's to run out to the son and attempt to get reconcil- to reconcile the son to the extent that the community is satisfied that reconciliation has taken place because he can't possibly come back into the community unless that happens. So he absorbs the punishment. Yeah, he absorbs the humiliation, right. Amen. He absorbs the humiliation. And this is why, again, we see a picture of Jesus in the Father more than we see a 
picture of the Father, although, of course, Jesus is revealing the Father. But what a powerful picture of grace this is, of sort of preemptive grace. And I think it's this act uh, and what the Father next does that leads the Son to repentance. So he intends to, and I know it's kind of a, a strange thing for us to picture in our minds, but so, so the father goes sort of running out there in humiliation. Uh, but what, what does this tell us about the father's thoughts of his son since he left? Obviously, he's not sitting there brooding. I mean, he's sitting there in a certain sense. He's not angry. He's not just angry that the son took off and is gone. Uh, I don't, you know, some of us that are parents, I don't know if uh, you, you have experienced the kinds of things that um, that we see in this. What, what, what would it be like for you? What, what is it like when your child is gone? Even if they've done, you know, some crazy thing. Uh, they're out using, you know, serious drugs. They've, they've squandered their own living. Uh, they have fallen quite far from anything. Uh, what is the thought that you have about that child? I mean, don't you think about them every day? Wouldn't you think about them every day? Regardless of what they were doing? We have, um, I was thinking that there's something that the Jews probably should have known. Uh, but l- let me comment first on sort of what I think uh, provokes repentance in the, in the Son. Because we see also, if we go to, uh, if we take a look in, um, turn with me if you would to Hosea chapter 11 verses 5 to 9. L- let's go with that point that I have. I'm sorry I jumped around a little bit there, but let's go to Hosea chapter 11. Why would the Pharisees, why would it be unexpected that we would see this sort of tenderness in God? Despite Now remember, this is there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that this Katsatsa ceremony is something that was uh, directed by God. God didn't put this in place. There's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about this ceremony of, of cutting off a child if they lose their son to a Gentile... Uh, lose their money or their living to this this is something that was put in place by the Jews over a period of time I think this might yeah I think this even proceeds from the Talmud so this there was no there was no prescription in the Old Testament for this kind of a treatment but if we go to does anyone have that passage Hosea chapter 11 verses 5 through 9 Susan would you read that out loud for us Swords will, will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even if they call me call to the most high, they will by no means exalt them. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adam? How can I make you like Zebulun? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come them. They will follow me. They will war like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That's good. That's, I don't think we even need to go. We don't need to go any further than that. Just five, particularly through nine. So you see two things going on. God is setting things up to judge Israel severely and to bring on them absolute ruin. But even in the midst of all that, look at this 
the heart of God is it's just poured out here, right in the middle of this. I mean, you have nothing to this point that looks anything like this. Just in the midst of all of it. And I know that it's very easy for us, as we say this, right, in, in theological speak, we say that sometimes when we see God talking the way He does, it is, uh, it is a uh, anthropomorphism, right, where people are talking about you know, well, we're trying to understand God in human terms. And I think that's, to some extent, yes, that's true, but God wants us to understand something that's actually so. So even if, even if we're getting some discussion here that just makes it easier for humans to understand, God isn't just trying to get humans to understand something that isn't actually so, as if God is so completely different from this, but I've got to give you this to understand me. No, we give understanding and we make things accessible so that we can know. God is like this. And we say to ourselves, does, was God struggling within himself? And we, we, we can be, if we're, if we're not careful, we can come so theologically uptight that we lose the heart of God that we're supposed to see in Christ Jesus. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, doesn't Jesus say, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me? Think of that every time you see Jesus doing something. When you see the prostitute dragged before Jesus and the elders ready to stone her, and Jesus is doing what he's doing in the dirt, whatever he's doing, I think he was just doodling, making stick figures. <laughs> but if you see that going on, you remember Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. The heart of God, as he revealed it in Christ Jesus, is supposed to have some effect on us, more so than sort of trying to theologically nuance exactly what does God experience when he says this thing which doesn't really say that God experiences this. Right? Brother, what do you say on this? Cause I wish we had a heart like God. Yeah. That we would forgive one another the way God forgives us. And yes. His mercy is so yes. long-suffering yes. and willing to forgive. Um, we, we tend to... Uh, I watched a clip the other day on a documentary about the son of Sam. Yes. Who had murdered so many people mm. in New York City. Yeah. And uh, he was put in jail and had like life sentence at least, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an attitude like after he became born again, like, oh, wow, God forgave right. him. Yeah. You know, what? God can't forgive somebody like that. He doesn't deserve to go to heaven, that type of thing. Even Christians have that attitude. Yeah. Even Christians have that. Oh, I doubt it. Why do you doubt it? Why do you doubt it? And it, because fundamentally, at times, it does come down to unbelief. Somebody preached on that recently. Unbelief in the grace of God. Grace is not easily packaged, wrapped up and explained and, and summarized. Grace is profound. And it is beyond us in some ways to be that same way, that same loving, forgiving person. But we certainly see it here in the Father. And we see the heart of God here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? In the midst of everything he's about to do, it strikes God in his own heart. How can I... It doesn't say he's not going to do it. But his heart, you see his heart here. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? What are those two things? This is a little, certainly Bible, trivial towns. Who are, what are Adma and Zeboim? Yes, yes, exactly. 
Those two towns were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah for the same thing. And what does Scripture, what does Peter tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah, which by extension will be true for these two towns? Turn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example to all those that should have to live ungodly. Amen. So, the same example that Sodom and Gomorrah were, so are Adma and Zeboim. And God says, how can I possibly make you like that? In His own covenantal heart, how can I possibly make you like permanently forsaken? He can't. He won't. Because that's not his heart. He will bring severe judgment, but he will not do that. He will not ultimately forsake them. It's consistent with his promise. Never will I leave you. Never will. He could never give them over. He could never treat them like Adma and Zeboim. It's not possible. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I, I, you know... Again, I don't want to over-weirdize the Scripture, but you almost see God on the verge of tears Himself. You know, how can I... I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Or your translations may say, I will not come to the cities. So He's not going to utterly and completely destroy them. He can't. So that, And I say all that to say the Pharisees were such a cold-hearted group. You know, they were such a they were so hard in their hearts towards their fellows. Yes. I was I was thinking, you know, and you know, this could be completely off the wall, but when when God goes through these things that are a struggle in himself or he's revealing his personality through somewhat of an emotion, Mm -hmm. it's not like God doesn't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite different from what we do when we make a decision or when we care mm-hmm. because we're worried because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. God, I think, just struggles with man's, I don't know, um, attitude and, and whatever towards ourselves and towards him, towards God. And that's what he's really struggling with. He's struggling at how how sinful we are. That's what he mourns about. When it comes to relationship, which is what God is all about, I mean, we are created in the image of God. So every, everything that we experience is in some way related to the image of God. Obviously, except we take it to the synth degree, right? We, 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 there's things that God just doesn't do, but His love, His affection, His compassion, all these things we have, what we properly call in theology His communicable attributes, Right? Because he's got his incommunicable ones and his communicable ones, and his incommunicable ones are the ones that belong strictly to him, like his sovereignty, right? Although in my house I'm sovereign, but as, as being as it may, over my dog, uh, be that be that as it may. Uh, so there are those things about God that are very much like us, and the and the Pharisees efface the image of God in themselves every bit as much as the dog Gentile does who's out doing all the things that he's doing. In the midst of their most intense religious practice, they are every bit as much defacing the image of God as is the prostitute who's given herself over to man after man after man. But they don't see it. And and Jesus, because he's such a genius, is given so many things in this parable um, to help us, help the Pharisees to understand. What What a... what, what a powerful thing the love of God is. What a hopeful thing the love of God is. And this leads to... I think this sort of leads to 
the son's repentance. What does if we look at verse twenty one? And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. How does that differ from, from what he first said? Just that I came to his senses. The, the scripture says that he came to his senses, but I'm talking about specifically the son's words. He leaves out one third of what he previously said, previously said to himself in his plan. Right? So what did he say back in verse 19, uh, 17? No, I'm sorry. Yes, what did he say in verse 19 that he does not say in verse 21? Make me, make me like one of your hired Exactly, right. You see, in, in my view, and, in, and I think that what some of the commentators are getting at and what we're finding out here as we learn perhaps in new ways about this parable is the son had a very, even at this point, had a very sort of Pharisee, um, um, a Pharisee sort of uh, influenced view of how to get right again. Go back, earn back the money, and get right that way. Okay? He doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that. In response to the Father's lavish love, he just, I think this is, the, I think this is where genuine repentance took place. It's a response to the love of God. It's a response, in this case, to the love of the Father. The Father just covering him with love. I think he leaves that part off quite deliberately here because I think he's had a real change has happened at this point. Todd? I think you make a good point. It's, it's, it's the difficulty in, in the pleasure of the parables. Mm-hmm. That yes. There's that uncertainty where you get all these differing interpretations mm. that don't affect the overall text. Yes. But we're able to put ourselves in the place of mm-hmm. that individual person. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at it and, and thinking that for the work for the lost who become found and I know I know you're making a distinction between 19 and 21 but the first has to take place before the second so we still could say that verse 19 is the beginning mm-hmm. of the transformation yeah I think it God because only be, I would agree with you in as much as God uses things he uses examples he uses means he uses things to get him where he wants them well, the point I'm making is is the disappointment with the world and mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. comes first before conversion. Yeah. It's just always that. I don't think, in, but in this case, I just don't think it's disappointment of the heart. I think it's just yeah, no, strictly I, I, physical I circumstances. Yeah. yeah. I think it's strictly, but, but because it's a parable and it has meaning beyond what we just see here, yeah, I would say that as well. I mean, I can say as someone that was, you know, in the throes of alcohol and drugs, you know, it, you just get to the point where uh, you, you just know this isn't it. I mean, this just isn't it. But the problem is you just keep doing it. And that's what it's like to be enslaved to sin. I mean, the alcoholic and the drug addict, especially the one we see in the street, it's very easy to look at and in a certain heart say, but for the grace of God, there I go. But, for the <laughs> but i got news for you. You're all like that. I'm like that in other ways as well. There are things that I did or hopefully don't do as much now, but that would look like the equivalent of you know, the correlation between, okay, what does a drunk look like when he reaches his end? He's, he's in the streets or whatever. But, you know, what does, uh, what, what does uh, a person that is uh, caught up in lust, what does that ultimately end up looking like? Adultery. That's the correlation to the drunk lying in the street. Uh, the guy that wants to really make it in work in, in his profession. What does it look like? Stepping all over other people, you know? So, it's very easy for us to see how necessary the grace of God is in someone else's life. 
<laughs> We're very good at that, brother. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, although the father was looking in that direction, apparently, he waited until the son took action himself. Then he came to an end of himself. And he decided that he could be better off with his father. And he comes towards his father. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the action began with the son mm-hmm. towards the father. And then the father had a spirit of willingness to forgive him mm-hmm. and, and then have a feast for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something missing on our end sometimes mm-hmm. when we issue forgiveness to people mm-hmm. when there's no repentance on their part. Mm-hmm. And an excellent example of this is the English community in Pennsylvania, I don't know how many years ago, five yeah. or so years ago, when someone went in and killed how many, 21 or 24 mm. kids, kids in the yeah. school. Huh? And the, the Amish community's immediate response was, we forgive you, uh-huh. and we love you, and so on and so forth. I think that was wrong, and it's <coughs> a wrong message mm-hmm. to the world. Mm-hmm. I think we first have to see the repentance, and then our willingness is to respond to that rather than the other way around. Yeah, this is sort of the age-old sort of spiritual discussion. Um, the father... Now, if the son were to come back and sort of didn't respond to the father's love in that way, I think he probably would have. I don't think he would have said, all right, yeah, you can be a hired servant and work and pay me back. Nothing about the father tells us that. And I think we'll see that particularly with the elder son. I think at that point, if, if you know, now we've got to recreate the parable. He would have said, son, how can you think of me in that way? How can you think that I would only accept you back if you come back and pay everything? I want you back in relationship with me. That's what I want. I don't, I don't care about the inheritance. You're here. We will find a way to make the inheritance work. Or whatever. You know? Or, or, you know, something. I mean, I don't know. I'm not as good at parables as Jesus. But, and the good, I'm not as good as getting on a cross as Him either. The, the simple point is, though, that we always have a heart, don't you, that would be in that state of readiness. My heart doesn't change when I see... The Father's heart didn't change when He saw the Son coming. And so there is that. But, you know, maybe someday we'll have just a lesson... Dedicate a whole class on uh, repentance and forgiveness. Because I think that would be fruitful uh, to work through. Because what you touched on, what you're mentioning over there, uh, has a lot of nuance to it. Because uh, on the one hand, you know, you're absolutely right, and on the other hand, there's already a precondition of the heart. In other words, it's not it's not my repentance that changes God's heart. Because if we're premature mm-hmm. in forgiving someone who's not repentant, mm-hmm. we are in a sense um, approving yes. of their sinfulness. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's where we've got to be careful. Yes, Tony. Uh, I was just wondering how it, how it works into um, verses like, you know, um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah. And it, if God waited for us to come to Him, it would never happen. Right. And so this is almost sounds like it's contradictory, but in a way, I think God has attributes that we don't necessarily understand and how, how to work that out in our mind logically. Mm-hmm. How, how does that work out? Do, are we expected to see repentance, but God is not? Mm-hmm. Or are you talking about a Christian point or an unsaved person? Well, someone being saved. Um, we're talking though about someone who's in a relationship with with the Father. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm speaking about Christian towards a Christian. Okay, I mm-hmm. can see how how we yeah. would be necessary for a Christian to step forward in right. repentance. But and certainly, uh, you you can even have Christians where each party thinks the other party that is supposed to be repentant, <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's where you hopefully have the larger church 
and, and this is of course the only sort of potential a potential drawback but one of the unavoidable unintended consequences of our independent churches is uh, churches that don't have wise leadership that might have somebody come in from another church uh, you know and, and you wonder what happened uh, and, and certainly as elder pastor you've seen this where people come where they come from another church and you don't know the whole story what went on in the other church and that kind of thing and the people in the other church might be saying you need to repent and this person might be saying you repent since we're in two completely different churches it's very difficult at that point to determine because the pastor of the other church may be at odds it's just you know, we're a mess. But, there is a very important... So, between Christians, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, we see this very clearly with Paul. Paul even said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Right? So that, so that things can happen that will show them what life outside the community is. Alright? But as soon as that... And now, but you see, now we have a slightly different situation than this because now you already have a Christian that all of a sudden you see them coming from a distance... And, you know, our celebration is going to be such as it is because of what it is. But, but you're right. If a Christian, certainly if a Christian sins against you, you can't repent. You can't forgive them unless they repent. All you can do is be prepared to. It's a transaction. It's like a transaction. They have to be able to receive the thing. You can be willing as all to give it. Two things. Uh, number one, I do agree you're a mess. Um, <laughs> uh, secondly, because I kind of lost Gary's point, because the, the first application was this guy who killed all those children in the school, and that's not a Christian to Christian uh, right. perspective. And so my mind was going in right. one one sense that. But then he said he was talking Christian to Christian. So he right. two and different that's things. Where I'm oh, okay. Because there's two different. You're positing two different things there. So you would say with the Amish because they weren't it, what you. The, the people that killed the Amish children were not Christian. Understood. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it so much as okay. who, who with who, but I just use right. that as an example yes. that we just immediately give forgiveness yes. when we don't see any repentance. And yes. Luke 17, 4 says, if your brother comes to you and repents, yes. forgive them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the repentance is a prerequisite yes. for forgiveness. Yes. We should be in a spirit of forgiveness immediately yes. and Absolutely. always. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Like our father is. Absolutely. We no. should, like the father, wait for the son mm-hmm. to, to show some remorse. Right. Now, the, and I, I concur with him on that. Uh, there's a higher bar for the Christian. Huh? Christian. Uh, with the world, um, that attitude of waiting for repentance on a regular basis in particular could very easily lead for the Christian to a pharisaical heart. Yeah. I'm better than them. Mm-hmm. That's the world. They're still in the mire and a clay. Yeah. Uh, rather than a, 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 a spirit of pity yep. for a lost world, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So there's, I'm not waiting for the world to repent when they have no concept of what repentance is. Right. No, no, I understand. And I don't think that this son was showing any remorse. I don't think this father was responding to remorse at all. But he was the one that took the action to come back to the father. Yeah, he didn't the come. Father didn't go and yeah. fetch him. No, I understand. That's my point. I understand, but I think. Jesus, is, I think the point of this parable is we, if we're going to capture the grace intended in this is that the Father went out to him. He didn't know he was repentant at that point. He was, he was just excited. He showed so much sun just over the fact that the son was alive and not dead that he was there. And it was then, after being showered with the Father's affection, that the son turned. 
I don't think there was any remorse, genuine remorse, until the Father lavished all the love on him. What does the book of Romans say about repentance? Third chapter? Second or third chapter? Uh, work of repentance. Well, it, it, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do we have consistency in the, a consistent hermeneutic, a consistent understanding of the Scripture? It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. What also says in Second Timothy two twenty four, right? Servant of God must be humble with all. You must not be quarrel. Must be humble with all. Able to teach. Patient. Right. And humility correcting those that are in opposition. If peradventure God will grant repentance to them that they may come to their senses. Grant repentance, come to their senses, they may escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Tony? Would you agree then that the son came back with the attitude of desperation and that he was willing to be that servant if, if that was the case? But then when that turnover of the father, when he's seen how excited mm-hmm. he was, it almost like came over him like, like a, you know, like a Absolutely. It's a response to love. Isn't that how we got saved? Didn't we get saved by a response to God's love? It's crystal clear to me in this parable. Now, not so much as it was before. Because I was always hung up, I think, on the son. This, this, this looked like him repenting in the verse of 17. And it took some good, uh, what I think was good teaching for me to see otherwise. When you look at, again, the, the first and second, the coin didn't come wandering back to the house. The sheep didn't come wandering back to the fold. Yes. Um, it, it's the point of the parable, the overall point of the parable, mm-hmm. to focus on the son who returned or the son who refused to accept his brother's return and the father's forgiveness. The point of the parable is to focus on the love of God and the love that he has, the extremely, uh, almost drenching, overflowing, what some would consider the disgusting grace of God, the scandalous grace of God. God is so gracious, it's disgusting. That's why he said, well, how did Jesus respond? This man sits with sinners and eats with them. Right? And Jesus' parables is a response to that outrageous statement. This man sits with sinners and eats with them. And this is Jesus saying, you know, not only do I eat with them, I run half naked in the street to go get them. I come down and I Philippians 2 myself. Right? Look at Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death upon a cross. Right? He didn't, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in likeness as a man, he humbled himself, became... You know, so, I don't see this son provoking the father's love. I see the father's love and uh, bringing about this sort of repentance and, and I think as we'll see I want to get at if we don't get to it this week the celebration is not for the son the celebration is for the father and I think the son who came back was overwhelmed yes at that point he just couldn't he had a new appreciation for his father mm-hmm. a, a deeper appreciation that he obviously didn't have before yep he essentially said I wish he had yep yep my, uh, never mind. Well, I'm just thinking of Romans, you know, having passed over sins previously committed, he's coming to just end mm. fire. Um, and, and also, too, I mean, it's the reason why D.A. Carson writes a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, the, the, the understanding of the love of God is not just Luke 15. 
right. and the prodigal son. Right. The difficulty of understanding the love of God and what makes it even more difficult is also understanding it as it in parallelism mm-hmm. to the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, the very same people, the, the very same people that Jesus was saying to Jerusalem, if you only knew mm-hmm. uh, how much more I wanted to gather you, gather you as chicks under a hen's wing. Mm-hmm. If you only knew how much my love and my forbearance and mm-hmm. my compassion was for you. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, mm-hmm. God was storing up wrath mm-hmm. in the day of wrath and mm-hmm. revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Yeah, same as we just saw in Hosea. Yeah. I mean, God was, his heart was recalled within him, but he was not going to totally and ultimately destroy. He was never going to ultimately totally destroy. He, he, would, he, would have to, he would have to break the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, God would have to break his covenant with Abraham in order to do that. Um, MacArthur said years ago, he says, he says the world looks at it and says, why would why would God not solve everything? And and why you know that whole big why question? And 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 he says we ought to be phrasing it this way: if we truly understood God and truly understood man, mm-hmm. why did God save anybody? Mm-hmm. Why not? Why did he save did he save mm-hmm. all? Mm-hmm. And um, I think we have to ask that question, but I think we can ask it in two ways. Sometimes we ask it in a way that I think actually contradicts the love of God. When we say, you know, God has every right to just ultimately destroy us. And, you know, I believe that. But sometimes the way that is said, it's so sort of self-deprecating beyond the pale, I think. Yes, we should ask how, but we should be asking, how, how can such love exist? What is this love? You know, what manner of, what did John say? What manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God? And didn't Paul pray that the Christians would understand the love of Christ? That they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's, 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 the love of God is so deep that we, we think, I fear that sometimes we think in our best understanding of human love, we can sort of get a good sense of what God's love is like. But it goes so far beyond that. The love of God just goes so far beyond that. Um, just so much so that Paul has to pray that by His Spirit, and according to the riches of His glory, and by His Spirit, God would fill the hearts of His people. He would, he, he would, fill, he would strengthen their hearts in faith. I'm sorry, He would strengthen their hearts so that Christ could dwell there by faith. That the Spirit would so prepare our hearts that Christ could dwell and abide there by our faith, and so that we, along with all the saints, right, could know the height and depth, the breadth and length, that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and be filled up with all the fullness of God. Because to know the love of God and experience the love of God is to be filled up with all the fullness of God. And this is what's going on here. So, uh, I'm just thinking in terms of the rest of Scripture and how Jesus reveals Himself and the cross and what Paul teaches and everything. And I'm just more convinced than ever that there's no repentance in the Son until the Father's love is lavished all over Him. Because the Father given the Son the inheritance, in a sense, was an act of love as well. Maybe in the same way that God allows us to fall into great and grievous sin. Because, you know, but the Father didn't know, the difference sort of breaks down a little here. The Father didn't know what the outcome of that would be. As far as He knew, certainly He hoped the Son would come. But as far as he knew, his son was taking money and heading out to a pagan Gentile land. Man, it's, it's not good, you know. He had no idea. Certainly he could hope every day. He, he's not going to get texts and emails and Facebook 
or he might see his son on Facebook. You know, he's in Massachusetts and he sees his son on Facebook in California, has a little idea of what his son is doing or his daughter is doing, you know. They had none of that. They didn't have letters. They didn't have anything. No clue. There's a, there's a great story in the New Testament. Joseph finds out that man is pregnant. Mm, yes, amen. I love that. According to the law, mm-hmm. they probably would have taken him and her. Mm-hmm. And stolen mm-hmm. However, they would definitely have taken her. That's right. And oh yeah, that's where they were. And um, he was willing to put her away. Yep. Privately, yep. For the rest of her life. Yep. And pay for it. Yes. Yep. You talk about grace. Yeah. And he was trying to figure out how he was going to do that. Yeah. Because this isn't the girl. This can't be. Can't be. I don't know how to handle it. Uh huh. Just like this son. Yeah. But God steps in. Yeah. God steps in. And when the angel reveals to. That truth about Joseph has ministered to me a number of times in my life. And I think that, you know, we read other things. See, you don't know what happened to Joseph after. You don't know this. All I need to know about Joseph is that verse. That's all I need to know about Joseph. And that's all God needs me to know about Joseph. Anything else about how many other children did he father? Anything else would distract us from that singular thing about Joseph that he sought to put Mary away quietly than rather expose her I think that's where the, the Reformed faith really has, I think, a better grasp than mm. some other uh, theologies that are out there from the standpoint of understanding that mm-hmm. you can't, with a big brush, describe God's love right. in this equilibrium mm-hmm. or equality mm-hmm. from saved to unsaved. But mm-hmm. There is a particular love that God has for His salvation of the world coming out. Yeah. You see that with Israel. You see with, I think, even the prodigal son, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, though, is, is that um, I think we understand God better by understanding the degrees of God's love and relationship towards the elect. And the mm. Yeah, and, and and so, yeah, the uh, wouldn't it be easy if we could fully understand and help others? understand the election. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, maybe we had to do Be- that enough for a Bible. Because it is very simple. We could certainly grasp the theological concept and sort of what it means, right? We could, and we could talk about it as it's revealed in Scripture. Um, but to understand, again, the heart of God and the election is, you know, people have said a million things about election. And we can say as much as Scripture says and, and, um, I think that as far as this parable is concerned, I almost see the father running. You can remember too, here's another thing about the father. Now this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but he had to lift up his robe to run. Alright? This is just, this is humiliating, humiliating. And again, we have no, we have no concept of this. Uh, There are some nations in Africa where the women wear no tops. They walk around topless, okay? So they're bare-chested all the time. There's no... It's nothing sexual. There's nothing the men are not... But if they let their ankles show, an absolute disgrace to the community. So I, I can't get my head around that. And I, I don't even know how that functions. That's the culture. Exactly. But, and so far removed are we from that culture. They could probably not understand why would the women... Why would the women? Uh, why would the women cover their 
breasts, but look at every one of them. Their ankles are showing. And they wear bracelets around their ankles to draw attention. The harlots, you know. I mean, just the way that they would see that is so different. So, you know, we may not be able to conceive of the Father. Of course, it's hard for us to conceive of wearing a robe anyway, you know what I mean? But uh, the Father wears this robe because that's what they wore then. And when he ran and his... Uh, he was just bringing all this humility, deflecting all this humiliation onto himself. All the humiliation the son might experience, uh, and, and certainly I think does to some extent. Um, but everything that the, that the son could experience by coming back into the community, uh, having those, again, having the earthenware vessel of, I don't know what the burnt corn and burnt... I, would, I look, I tried to find out what the burned corn and the burned nuts represent. You know what I mean? Why does it have to be that? Uh, you know, you have other places where God says He'll smear dung in the faces of His people. Mm. So where, where, where does this? What's up, what's up with the burnt corn and the burnt nuts? But I couldn't find it out anywhere. But significant enough that their custom was, if He came back into the community with this ceremony, they broke that jar in front of Him, pronounced His name. That's it. You're out of the community. You're done. You're cut off. And to be cut off from the covenant people of God, devastating. So you see, by knowing all that, we, we can sort of begin to see uh, more carefully. You can see the clock up there because of the sun in my eye. We get it like a minute. Uh, we can't see what's seen here. The again, I think it's Bailey writes this. The one sinner who repents in the story is the sheep. Going back to the other two, what does the sheep do? It gets lost. It rejoices in being found. That's what happens to the prodigal. The prodigal rejoices and accepts that he should be found by costly love. And in a certain sense, that's what repentance for a legalist is. It is to realize that we should be found by costly love and not by something we can do to make it right. That's really what repentance is. It's turning away from everything ourselves and throwing ourselves entirely on the love and the mercy. And it's a response. It's not a... It's not a responding to God's love is not a work. It's, it's, it's a response. It's a reflex to God's great love. Um, and which goes to your point about, you know, various levels of love and the electing love that God has. Whoever God loves to the extent that they're going to get saved, for whatever reason, other people are not recipients of that love. For whatever reason, God has going on at that time. Because God's redeeming love will save every single time. Every time. And uh, we'll take a look next week at um, the rest of what happens with this son and then what's going on with the older son and, you know, sort of what's happening with him. So I hope that this... I hope that this parable is coming to you new and fresh, as Scripture always should, and we're seeing it in ways that sort of continue to orient us towards the love and the grace of God and the almost perverse extremes he goes to. I think D.A. Carson wrote another book called The Scandal of the Cross, you know? Uh, the scandal of his grace. It's scandalous. It was scandalous to the Jews. And in many ways, whether we would see it or not, it's easy for us to read, you know, to the... Jews a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness. But, you know, where in our lives do we miss it with the grace of God? In our own personal lives, even in those little areas we think somehow we've got to earn God's favor back, in those little areas we think God's going to be okay with me today because after all, I've prayed three days in a row now and I haven't missed my scripture reading in a month and I've read through the Bible 47 times. Uh, I haven't. I'm just saying, you know, whoever, you know, right? All those little things are somehow in the back of our mind. We've preserved this little tiny treasury of merit for ourselves right so anyway uh, Kelly would you please pray for us go upstairs Father God your mercy is so